Throughout the history of the church, there have been various controversies about what the Bible actually teaches on various subjects of Christian theology. Some of these controversies are ancient, such as the Trinitarian controversy on whether God is three persons or one person in three forms, and the church just 300 years after Christ left this earth battled over this controversy and tried to sort out what the Bible exactly teaches on this subject. That's one of the ancient controversies that the church has lived through and struggled with. But other controversies are more modern. And I'm not up to speed on the latest heresies out there, so this one's a few years old, but I think it's still alive. And that is uh, the, uh, the idea of what's called open theism, the idea that God doesn't know the future, that the future is as much a mystery to God as it is to us. I don't know how the book of Revelation can mean anything, if that's true. I don't know how the prophecies of Scripture that have not been fulfilled can be fulfilled, if that's true, because, and honestly, it isn't true. So it's a serious problem. It's a serious error. It's a serious heresy. Now, I don't bring these up to talk about any particular one of them this morning. But rather, I bring them up to tell you and to help us think about the fact that professing Christians... People like you and me who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ and to have believed in him for salvation and to believe that the Bible is God's word. Professing Christians all throughout church history have sometimes made controversial claims about what Christian doctrine should be or what it is. Professing Christians argue about the meaning of certain things in Scripture and how Scripture should be interpreted and how Christian theology should be understood by all of the church. And so we experience these controversies in the church. But what do we make of them? How do we sort through them? How do we decide which controversy or which controversial claim is actually the true one, and which controversial claim is false. What do we do when someone who professes to be a Christian makes a controversial claim about Christian doctrine? And the answer is we go to the evidence. We ask for evidence when someone makes a controversial claim. And then we have to evaluate the evidence accordingly. In the 1500s, Martin Luther made a controversial claim. A controversial claim that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And that put him at odds with his church, the church where he was a monk, the Roman Catholic Church. And because of his controversial claims, the Roman Catholic Church put him on trial. And he stood before what is called the Diet of Worms, to be tried for teaching, among other things, that salvation is by faith alone. When Luther was rebuked at the Diet of Worms for teaching this, for his controversial claims, and when he was called to repent and recant of the things that he had taught, Luther said this, Unless I am convinced by Scripture 
and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. This is what Martin Luther said when he was called to recant of his controversial claims. He actually turned the tables on the leadership of the church and said, your claims are the ones that are controversial because they don't line up with scripture and plain reason. And so he said, if you want me to change what I believe, you must back up your claims. You must show me the evidence that I am wrong and that you are right. And if you show me this evidence based on God's word and based on logic, plain reason, he calls it, then he said, I will change my controversial claims. Now here in James chapter 2, James has been making some pretty controversial claims. And the controversial claim that he makes particularly in this paragraph of scripture that we began studying last time is the idea, the statement, that faith without works is dead. This was a controversial claim in the days in which James lived. The church was trying to understand the nature of salvation by grace through faith and what works had, if anything, to do with it. And there were some in the church who had gone farther than what the Bible, in fact, teaches. They went so far as to say that salvation being by faith alone means that works have no place in the Christian life. They're fine if someone does decide to do good works in pleasing to God, but they are not in any way directly tied to someone's salvation. James is teaching just the opposite. James is making the controversial claim that true faith always results in good works. And that if someone doesn't have good works, as the scripture defines them, then that person's faith is questionable. And not just questionable, but it's actually dead. It's not the real thing. It's not faith that's saved. This is the controversial claim that James has been making. Now, I said that we ask for evidence when someone makes a controversial claim. In the previous section of this paragraph, James laid out the controversial claim for us that faith without works is dead. Now, today, in the section we're going to look at, the subparagraph we're going to examine, James is going to lay out the evidence for his controversial claim. And we're going to see as we walk through the next section in our study of James chapter 2 this morning that there is evidence that real faith must result in good works. That real faith shows itself in intentional acts of faith. James is going to lay out the proof for us. And he's going to give us four proofs. And they can be subgrouped into two headings. Two of them are logical. And two of them are biblical. Now remember what Martin Luther said when he was called before the Diet of Worms. He said... Unless you show me in scripture and by plain reason, I will not recant. James is going to use those two pieces of evidence. First, he's going to appeal to plain reason, that is to logic. And then he is going to appeal to scripture. And he's going to point us to to two heroes of the faith. And all of these, the two logical proofs and the two biblical proofs, 
are designed to give us the evidence that we need to accept the proposition that faith without works is dead, or to put it positively, that genuine faith always results in works. And so let's jump into our passage this morning, and let's examine the evidence that real faith must result in good works. First, we're going to look at the logical evidence that James gives us, and that's laid out for us in verses 18 and 19. Let's look together at the scripture. James chapter 2, verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. This verse raises an objection. And we see that objection first with the word but, which indicates a strong contrast, and the idea that someone will say. And you understand how this works logically, how people argue this way. When people are making an argument, they anticipate the objections of other people. And then, having stated those objections, they go on to answer them. That's what James is doing here. But the way he words it is a little strange. Because notice what it says. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. That's what James is saying. James isn't the one saying faith can exist without works and be saving faith. He's saying the opposite. He's saying you must have deeds or you don't have genuine faith. And so the wording that James gives us here is a little unusual. It's a little unexpected, the way that it is developed and the way that it shows in this passage of Scripture. And so we, sh- we need to interpret then what James is saying a little bit differently than what the NIV indicates in this passage. What the NIV indicates in this passage is the objection of someone who is, seems to be taking James's position. But probably the better way to translate this is to say someone will say one person has faith and someone else has deeds. In other words, this person that James is anticipating is trying to lay out both sides. He's not necessarily saying I'm on James's side or I'm on the other side. He's saying there are Christians on both sides of this issue. Can't we all just get along? All right, and so once James raises this idea that some people have faith and some people have works, but the implication is we're all Christians— James goes on then in the rest of verse 18 to answer this idea logically. And notice what his answer is. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. What is the point here that James is trying to say? What is the answer that he's giving to the objection raised that some people have faith and some Christians have works? The answer to that is very simply stated James's point in verse 18 is that you can't see faith without works. Anyone can claim to have faith, as we've discussed in previous sessions. Anyone can say, of course I'm a believer in God. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Anybody can say that. James's point in verse 18 especially is, you don't see the evidence unless that person has good works. We see at the end of verse 18 that he says, first of all, a challenge. Show me your faith without deeds. How are you going to do that exactly? Why should I accept the claim of anyone that they're a Christian if there isn't anything Christ-like following from their claim to have faith? So the first part is a challenge. 
to the idea that faith can exist without works. James says there's no way to know. There's no evidence. It's impossible to evaluate someone's claim to faith. And then he follows up the challenge by saying, I will show you my faith by my deeds. And this is the point. The point isn't that good works are necessary to have saving faith. The point is, saving faith is invisible and actually, therefore, impossible without good works that flow from it. And so the first objection, the first logical evidence that James gives is, you can't see someone's faith unless they have good works with it. Anyone can claim to have faith. But good works are the evidence that faith is real. The second piece of logical evidence that James gives us comes to us in verse 19. And the challenge there, the uh, logic there is this, that you can have faith without having salvation. In verse 18, James says, you can't see faith without good works. In verse 19, he says, you can have faith and not have salvation. Notice what he says in verse 19. James says, you believe that there is one God. Here's a claim to faith, and it's a very orthodox claim to faith. Remember that, Jewish, that, that uh, James was writing to a Jewish audience, and in so doing, writing to a Jewish audience, it was expected and it was practiced by Jewish people to say what's called the Shema, hear Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Faithful Jewish people said that twice a day to remind them of the, one of the core tenets of the Jewish faith. And James says, someone comes along and says that they believe that there is one God. In other words, their faith, their statement of faith, their profession of faith is as orthodox as it gets. It's a statement that only one God exists in all of eternity and in all of the universe. But James sarcastically responds to this claim by saying, good for you. Just like we patronizingly tell someone, maybe even patting them on the head, good for you when they say something that is bogus, when they say something that makes a claim that we know is foolish and contradicted by facts. That's what James says here. He responds sarcastically and says, good. And then he follows up with a real zinger. Even demons believe that God is one Lord. And they shudder. As James describes here, the type of faith that doesn't save, remember that's the point. There is a kind of faith that doesn't save a person. You can have faith without being saved. He cites the demons, which all believers in Judaism knew existed, and all believers in Christ know exist. We know that there are unseen forces out there, that there are spirit beings who have allied themselves against God. And yet, like us, they were created by the one true and living God. They were created by him to be his servants. And yet, they rebelled against the one true and living God. And they were confirmed in their unbelief, in their rebellion. There is no salvation available for demons. And yet, they believe God. And their belief is as orthodox as yours and mine is. In fact, their belief might be more orthodox than yours 
and mine is, because you and I are subject to some of the frailties of the human nature. Our beliefs may be orthodox as far as we understand them scripturally, but our understanding isn't perfect. We're fallible human beings. There are pieces of our theology, perhaps, that because we haven't brought them under fully the lordship of Christ and the scriptures, or because we just don't understand fully the doctrines of scripture, we might have some fuzzy points of theology in our understanding of God. Demons don't have that. Demons have experienced God's in a way that you and I have not yet. Demons understand the nature of God, the holiness of God. They understand the justice of God. And they understand it in a way that is more real and more personal than you and I even do in our understanding, because our understanding is based on God's revelation. Theirs is based on personal experience. And so the idea that you can believe and not be saved is self-evidently true. Because demons believe that God exists. They believe that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is loving and good. They believe all the things that the scriptures teach about God. They believe all of it. Satan and his demons believe all of it. And they believe it in an orthodox way, and yet they are not saved. That's why they shudder at the thought of who God is. Because they know that they stand condemned by God and that a day is coming when they will be subject to the wrath of God poured out upon them for their rebellion and for, I might add, the sinful deeds, the intentional acts of rebellion that Satan and his demons perform on a regular basis trying to deceive the people of God. Demons believe that God exists, and their works show that they are not saved. And the scripture tells us that they are not saved. And they shudder because they know there is a day when they will stand in accountability toward God. So what's the point? The point is that it is illogical for someone to say that some people have faith and they don't have any deeds that flow from it, and other people have faith and they have works for it, but all are Christians. James says it's illogical to believe that. So it's illogical for us to hold to what is sometimes called easy believism. Easy believism teaches that all you have to do to be saved is assent to certain facts about God. That all you have to do to be saved is believe that Christ died for our sins. And if you believe that, Easy believism teaches you're saved, even if you never follow Christ, even if there is never any evidence of faith in your life, if there are no intentional acts of faith flowing from your faith, the easy believist says you're still in. And on the day of judgment, you'll be received by God. And I grew up in a church that didn't fully believe this, but flirted with it and had elements in its Doctrine in its teaching and in its practice that said this as well. And to this day, at times in my life, I encounter people who hold fast to someone's profession of faith, even though that profession never had any works that follow from it. This happens to me often when I do a funeral for someone or go to a funeral of someone related to someone in our church. And I'll ask 
the person who, know, who knows, knows this person. Did your father or mother, your grandfather, whoever the person who died is, did this person ever come to faith in Christ? And sometimes they'll say, well, yes. Yes. And sometimes, depending on how well they understand what the Bible teaches, they'll, they'll, they're, they're holding on to that, that this person will be in heaven. They'll say they never really came to church and never really followed Christ, but they made that profession of faith. They walked that aisle, or they raised their hands and said, I believe that Jesus died for me. But they never actually did anything that looks like a Christian. But I'm glad they're saved. Sometimes people will say that to me, and sometimes other people will say to me, yeah, well, they made a profession of faith, but I don't see any fruit from their life. And so I don't really know. And a person who says that, obviously, is hoping for the best but can't really be confident because they understand that faith without works is dead. And so it's illogical for the church to teach that someone can merely assent to certain truths about God, certain facts of the gospel, and therefore be saved if there is no evidence of salvation that follows. It fails the test of logic. And therefore, you and I as Christians shouldn't be so eager to hold on to a mere profession of faith when there isn't a life of intentional acts of faith that results from it. It's illogical. And therefore, it's not true. That's the first way that James goes about to prove his case, to offer evidence that faith without works is dead. There is evidence that real faith must result in good works because it only flows logically from what the Bible teaches about what faith is. In the remaining parts of our paragraph for this morning, James turns from talking about the logic to talking about the biblical examples. There is logical evidence, but there's also biblical evidence. And in verses 20 through 26, James talks about two people from the Old Testament who have been widely regarded by Jewish people and Christians alike as genuine heroes of the faith. These two people really couldn't be more unalike, as we'll see later on in this message. The thing that unites them is they had faith in God and acted in a way that was consistent with what genuine faith looks like. The first of these people that James discusses is Abraham. And he tells us in verses 20 through 24 that Abraham's obedience was evidence of his faith. Now let's look together at these verses and see how the Bible describes the evidence of faith in Abraham's life. First of all, in verse 20, James turns and says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Here is the thesis statement for this subparagraph of Scripture. This is what James is providing, both in the logic and in the Scripture. He's providing evidence for his claim that faith without deeds is useless. That is, that it doesn't save. That is, that it is dead, to use another term that he uses. This is the evidence that James is giving. And he says, you foolish person. Now, when the Bible talks about someone who is foolish... It's not primarily designed as an insult. It is insulting, and I think James means it to be insulting here, because honestly, no one 
is ever called a fool without feeling insulted by that. But that's not really the point. It's not really to call somebody a name. Rather, it's to put a label on a type of person. A type of person who hears God's word, but doesn't actually believe it consistently. Doesn't put it into practice in that person's life. The foolish person in scripture is someone who is empty. And the fool in scripture is a person who is led into moral error by his rejection of God and his word. That's what makes somebody foolish. And James is saying that a person who wants to believe that faith is enough to save you, even if that faith never changes you, even if that faith doesn't result in good works, James is saying this person is not just someone who is misinformed. They might be misinformed, but now having received this teaching from James, they'll change their ways if they really believe in God's word. No, James is saying if you still reject the doctrine I've taught you, and the evidence I'm providing, you're, you're a fool. You have intentionally turned away from God and his revelation, and therefore you will be led into error and into moral problems. And so that's why James says in verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Now in verse 21, James provides the first of the biblical examples, the first of the biblical evidences of faith and works working together, and that is Abraham. He says in verse 21, as James often does with his rhetorical questions, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? In this section, James begins to lay out the biblical evidence that genuine faith results in good works. And he begins with the story of Abraham, the person of Abraham. And he enters Abraham's life in a particular place in his life. If you've read the Old Testament, if you've been in church, if you understand the person of Abraham, you understand that God had a special relationship with Abraham. And that special relationship was only by the grace of God. Abraham was nobody. And yet God chose him. And God called him to obedience and said, follow me. And I'll show you a land that I'm going to give you. And I'll bless you. And I'll make you into a great nation. That was the promise that Abraham was given. And so James calls him our father here particularly because of the Jewish connection that his readers had to Abraham. That they had a lineage, a physical connection to Abraham. He was the father, in a very real sense, of the Jewish nation. And Abraham says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now this phrase, considered righteous, especially this word considered, is the same word that Paul uses when he says Abraham was declared righteous. He was declared righteous. And we've talked already about how we as a church believe in justification by faith. 
That is, that God declares somebody righteous, even though they are not, when they put their faith and trust in Christ. And the reason God declares somebody righteous when they put their faith in Christ is because Christ has paid the penalty for sins, and God credits that penalty, or he credits my sin and the penalty due to Christ, and God credits the righteousness of Christ to me. That's why a person is declared righteous. We're declared righteous because of the gracious act of God crediting to us the merits of Christ for us. Now James uses the same word that Paul says justifies someone by faith and says, wasn't Abraham our father justified? Wasn't he declared righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This appears on its surface to be somewhat, at least, if not a direct confrontation and refutation of what Paul says in James 4, 2, and 3, and what Paul also says in Galatians 3, 6. And one of the tensions in biblical theology that Christians have had to grapple with are the seeming distinctions or contradictions even between what Paul says and what Paul says about Abraham and what James says about Abraham. Paul, in these passages, Romans 4, 2, and 3, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, says Abraham was declared righteous. And he was declared righteous simply by believing that his son Isaac would be born when there was no evidence for him to believe that. He believed God, the Bible says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says that's how Christian faith works as well. We believe God and we are credited with righteousness. James comes along and says, well, Abraham was actually credited with righteousness. He was actually declared righteous by what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And so how do we resolve this tension between what the Bible teaches? Using the same example of faith, Abraham, in both instances. Well, James is going to clarify the point in the next couple of verses. But before we go to there, I want to remind you of the history that's going on here. James says in 2.21, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? When Abraham offered Isaac on the altar, that was well and, and quite a bit later in Abraham's walk with God. He had been walking with God for a long time before God challenged him and put his faith to the test by saying, take this son that you waited for, that I promised for you, the one that I said will have so many descendants that he'll be like the star, his descendants, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky or the sand on the sea. You'll have a great nation come from him. God said, take this son and treat him like a burnt offering, kill him, and burn his body on an altar. That was God's command to Abraham. And that happened, again, as I said, relatively late in Abraham's life, in his walk with God. We're told that his obedience was evidence of his faith. And the Bible tells us that this happened in Genesis 22. This, in Genesis 22 is when Abraham was commanded to put Isaac on the altar and sacrifice him as an act of worship and obedience to God. 
Abraham did what God said. The very next morning, he got up early. He got everything that he would need. He got Isaac, and he traveled to the place where God had commanded him to go. And he did everything up to the point of taking Isaac's life before God stepped in and stopped him, because God's not about human sacrifice. But Abraham was willing to go all the way in obedience to what God had commanded him to do. James looks at that and says to us here in verse 21, this is where Abraham was considered righteous. It was for what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. But the next two verses clarify the meaning for us. And so let's look at what they say. Verse 22 says this, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what? He did. James cites this case. He cites this example of what Abraham did in Genesis 22. And he says that this is the outworking of faith in Abraham's life. He says that his faith and his actions were working together. What it means is that the actions were consistent with what someone who has faith in God would do. You know in your own experience, perhaps even when dealing with your children, that sometimes they will say something and do something else. And you say to them, what you say and what you do don't match. They're not consistent with one another. When James says Abraham is an example of someone who worked out his faith, someone whose faith was shown by what he did, he says it's because his faith and his actions were working together. The actions that he did, the intentional acts of obedience to God, were consistent with what someone who believes God would do. Only if you believed in God and his revelation would you do something as extreme as offer the son and kill the son that God promised you. And so James says here at the end, his faith was made complete by what he did. That is, it was the logical outcome of what faith is. It was the proof, the evidence. Remember, that's what James is talking about. It's the evidence that his faith was real. But he goes on in verse 23 to elaborate even further and and further clarify how this works together. He says in verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. The key word here is the word fulfilled. And as we look at what the scripture says about Abraham and his faith and his intentional acts of faith, I told you that the incident that James cites here as proof of Abraham's faith, the offering of Isaac on the altar, that happened in Genesis chapter 22. But the statement that James makes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God said that about him. And God said that about him way back in Genesis 15, 6. God said that to him before Isaac was even born, before Isaac was even conceived. Abraham believed the promise of God and that's when God credited it to him as righteousness. And so when James now says here, 
that the scripture was fulfilled. He's not claiming that Abraham was justified when he offered. Rather, he is saying that there was a fulfillment of what God had said, that he was declared righteous when he had faith. And that declaration of righteous was proved true when he acted in faith. And remember what God said at the end of this incident where Isaac was offered upon the altar. God said, now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. God knew, of course, that Abraham's faith was genuine. What he meant when he said, now I know, is now you've proved it. And the works, the acts of obedience, this particular one cited by James, is not the basis on which Abraham was justified. It's the proof that God was right when he said, you believe me. And I'm crediting you with righteousness. Paul and James believe the same thing because Paul also, in many texts, calls into question the idea of someone who claims to have faith but doesn't have obedience to it. They believe the same thing. They're looking at it in two different ways. Paul is talking about how someone receives the declaration that we call justification. The declaration that you are righteous because of Christ. How does someone receive that? You receive it by faith. When is that fulfilled, James says? It's fulfilled when you act intentionally out of faith. And the truth of the matter is that you and I, if you're a Christian, you were declared righteous by, Jesus, by, by God because of the merits of Jesus Christ. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Someday we're going to stand before God in judgment. And God's going to declare us not guilty at that moment as well. There is a coming declaration of our righteousness. And that righteousness, again, is not by our works. It's by our faith in Jesus Christ, but it's proved by our works. When we live out consistently what a follower of Christ looks like and does, when we act intentionally, in ways that are consistent with faith, it demonstrates to us and to everyone else that we have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we are saved by faith alone because of God's grace alone. But the faith that saves never stands alone. It shows itself in the way that A man of faith or a woman of faith lives his or her life. We hear God's word like Abraham did. And we obey what it says as an intentional act of faith. Now in verse 24, James offers us a second example of someone who lived by faith. Someone whose faith was shown to be genuine by what she did. And that person, of course, is a woman known as Rahab. Now in verse 25, he moves on and says, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Notice the actions of her faith. It says it's what she did when she did two things. She gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. This, of course, comes to us from the Old Testament 
from the book of Joshua. As God's people were preparing to take the land that God had promised to Abraham and invade it and inhabit it and receive the promise of God. They came to this city, this city where Rahab lived, and they spied out the land. And people who didn't want them to take the land heard about it and went hunting for them. They came to the home of this woman, Rahab, a prostitute, someone who had men coming and going from her home all the time. They went there. And there they found someone who had heard what God had said. Rahab had heard reports about how God had provided for his people and protected them and won other battles for them that they faced along their way in their 40-year sojourn from Egypt to the Promised Land. She had heard these reports. And because she believed them, she didn't turn over the spies. Rather, she protected them. She hid them when those who were seeking them came to her house looking to kill them. And then she released them in a way where they wouldn't be protected. James says it was these acts of faith, protecting the spies, And getting them out safely, that caused Rahab to be considered righteous. But notice in verse 26 what he says about this. He says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. In other words, he's saying this is further proof biblically that genuine faith works itself out. And so what he's saying, he says it's in the same way. That is because of her faith in God. That's what caused her to act the way that she did. And so if you want proof that a true Christian will follow Jesus Christ, will live in obedience to Jesus Christ, will have intentional acts of faith that flow from his or her life, you need to think about the logic, but you also need to consider what the scriptures say. Both of these people, Abraham and Rahab, showed genuine faith in God. And they showed that genuine faith in God by what they did. Now, these people couldn't have been more different Abraham and Rahab. One of them, Abraham, was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham was the ancestor of Israel. He was the father of the Jewish race. Rahab was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish at all. She wasn't connected to Judaism in any way. Abraham was a nomad. He lived in tents. He was a sheep herder. He never had a place to live at all, and he only owned one piece of land, and that was a burial plot. So he was a rancher. He was a guy of the country. Rahab was a city dweller. She was sophisticated. She had a place right on the wall, probably a decent place to live. Abraham got direct revelation from God. God spoke to him and told him what to do. Rahab's information, her revelation of God, was indirect. It was from the testimonies of other people, other people who had been conquered by the people of Israel. So these two people, on their face, and in many ways, could not be more different from each other. What unites them, what brings them together, is that both had faith in God's word. They heard either from God or what God had done from others. They believed it. And because they believed it, they acted in ways that were consistent with their belief. They performed intentional acts of faith because their faith in God was real. And so when we talk about 
what the big idea of this passage is. And we consider the evidence. We see in this passage very clearly that intentional acts of faith are the only evidence that your faith is real. The challenge of James is, how can you show me that your faith is real if you have no acts of faith? It's illogical, and it's unbiblical. And so we need to release the notion that someone can be saved because they pray to prayer, or because they say orthodox things, or even because they're a member of our church. The evidence of genuine faith in God is not a statement of faith or a statement of orthodoxy. The evidence of faith, the only evidence that matters, is the evidence shown through intentional acts of faith. And again, we see this in James's conclusion. The point that he's been driving home from the very beginning of the passage to the very end here in James 2.26 is, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Being dead means it's useless. When a person dies, of course, we honor the image of God in that person. We honor the eternal soul of that person by treating their body with reverence and remembering them. But the truth is their body is useless to them and to us. That's why we bury them. And James says, the kind of faith you're talking about, the kind that's demonic in its commonality, is also likewise useless. It's as useless as a dead body. It's good for nothing, and therefore, it should, not be any, it should not give you any degree of confidence when you stand before God or when you live in this world. The point is not that faith plus works is how you get saved. The Bible is totally clear about this. Paul said in Ephesians 2, It is by grace that you're saved through faith, not of works. And he's talking there about works of the law. But he follows it up and says, but we are God's workmanship, created to do good works in Christ Jesus. The point is not that you get saved by having faith and doing good works. The point is, if you're really saved by faith, good works will result. Jesus talked about the difference between the soils where the word of God is planted. He says the good soil yields a crop. Now he says sometimes it's 30 Sometimes it's 60, sometimes it's 100-fold. In other words, not every Christian has the same amount of evidence, has the same amount of growth. But all of us, if we have genuine faith in Christ, will have some kind of evidence in the way that we live that our faith is real, that it's genuine. The reason that real faith produces good works is because faith is not just an intellectual assent to something. Rather, real faith is the outgrowth of new life that's planted in a person, the resurrection of that person's dead spirit. And because you are now alive to God when Christ saved you and when he gave you the gift of real faith, you start to act like a living being. Living human beings do certain things that evidence their life. And real spiritual beings, people who have really been raised to new life in Jesus Christ, also act like people who are alive. They do spiritual things. And those things are the intentional acts of faith. None of us is perfect. 
in our walk with God. But if we genuinely know God, there will be a walk with God. There will be changes in our life that are directly attributable, directly tied to our profession of faith because they rise from that profession of faith. They are the evidence of new life in Jesus Christ. None of us is perfect, but there's a desire in your heart, if you're a Christian, to obey what God's word says. And there is an effort in your heart to keep the commands of God's word and to show your faith in the life that you live. That's what intentional acts of faith are all about. They are the only evidence that exists that your faith is real. Is the evidence there? If not, you need to turn to God and plead for him to work in your life, to give you the gift of repentance and faith. And live a life with intentional acts of faith.